0: one hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of launch with tech leaders my name is adam Oberhausen. i'm the vp of customer solutions at right brain networks and i'm your host for today joining me today is friend software and data consultant tom kowalski say hi tom hello and uh our uh our good friend joe is is missing an action today not sure but um Anyways, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some programming paradigms today. In particular, we're going to be uh, discussing the nuances and differences between OOP, which stands for Object-Oriented Programming, and Functional Programming. Um, with that, um, kick it over to you, Tom, to introduce our, our subject matter experts today.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited about this. I'm dabbling in kind of my own little paradigm that i've been putting together is like a mix of everything so i'm excited to uh to talk about this and get everyone's thoughts on it so with that we brought back shafiq and say hi hello hello and joining us as well with uh mike
2: introduce yourself
1: yeah i'm, I'm mike on flow
3: uh director of technology at clarity voice uh i've been uh in the software space for about 23 years i have done oop functional Uh, everything in
0: between right so all right i'm glad you're here thank you uh well i i think i'll just uh probably kick it over to shafiq um you know this uh, episode was your idea shafiq you had said you'd done a recent talk about this particular topic um so i would just like to i've got some things i want to talk about but i thought i'd just start by opening up the floor to you and maybe you could just share your thoughts um, and how you presented this material in your at your recent event.
4: Yeah, maybe we should just start with a punchline right away. So, yeah, exactly. We don't need any, any you know teasers or anything. So, the the bottom line was having a hybrid you know approach in your in your applications is probably the best way to go. So, you know, in, in the talk I gave a somewhat detailed view of what we do at OpenDoc. Uh, and I think it's something that I've, it's kind of evolved in my mind over the years, and it works pretty well. It kind of combines the strengths of functional and OOP and while avoiding some of the, you know, the weaknesses of both paradigms. So so the hybrid approach is kind of the, the key. It seems to apply to other aspects uh, in life in general. So uh, that's kind of the punchline. Um, OOP, you know, when I say OOP, it also includes kind of uh, the imperative paradigms as well, I mean, they're more similar in my mind, you know, object-oriented programming and imperative programming. It's kind of, they're, they're clumped together closer in that paradigm space relative to to functional. And uh, really the, the experience I had with functional programming was I kind of got into Haskell for, you know, three years or so. And that was kind of a, a mind-bending experience. I think it was very in- insightful and interesting. Um, and so now I'm kind of back from that from that world and and trying to do the hybrid thing.
0: Okay, well let, maybe let's uh you know take a step back and like start with some simple definitions. Like maybe Mike, if you don't mind, in your in your terms, how would you describe OOP? And then how you know as if I'm a child, you know, explain OOP to me, and then explain functional programming to me, um, so that someone. With limited understanding of programming, could maybe grasp some of these higher level concepts.
3: Yeah, I like what Shafiq said about imperative, right? And I do feel like if I'm to explain it to people, I'll say that um, you know, with object oriented programming, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the five year old, or at least the very simple, and then we can expand on it if we need to. But with object oriented, uh, a lot of times that you know we're we're coupling that, or not coupling it, but we're essentially um, you know using. an imperative method, which is, you know, I want you to do it. I want you to do something. And I also want you to do it like this and this and giving it very specifics, right? Where at the inverse of that is declarative, uh, which I found that functional programming uh, lends itself well to a declarative approach, which is sort of like, here's the outcome I want. I don't exactly care how you do it, right? But but we want this outcome at the end, right? And uh, there's a lot more to it. Obviously, I could talk on object-oriented, um, you know, I will I will say that object-oriented, you know, we're taking um, these, you know, classes uh, and essentially extending from them, right? And we're also encapsulating the information as well as the way that you're going to act on that data and information in the same nomenclature, the same, you know, uh, the same entity, right? Where it's functional, you're taking your data And your functions, and you're sort of separating that, and you're transforming it down the line, right? So you're going to get something out the other end, but you're not going to, um, you know, you're not going to be mutating that along the lines generally, depending on what you're using. And uh, I've used Elm uh, as one of my functional languages, which is purely functional, which essentially this means that you don't have any direct side effects, right? They're all going through essentially a backplane, kind of like Haskell. And then I've used uh, languages like Elixir, which is more akin to you know, there's not it's definitely immutable, but uh, but it, it feels more functional, right, or more like or more like object oriented, right, because you have some state mutations or something that uh, along the lines of using recursion uh, sort of feels like a state mutation. So sorry, that probably wasn't the five year old, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you have do you have kids, Mike? I gotta ask us. <laughs> You know what I, I do? I, I do. You know what? Listen, both of my kids are professional programmers now. They're eight and thirteen. Yeah, I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So let me. I'll I'll say I'll see. I asked a certain AI model to explain this to me as a child, and this is what this is what uh, ChatGPT told me. So for OOP, it says, imagine you're playing with a toy car. This toy car has certain features. It's red, has four wheels, has doors, can open and close. These features are like the data in OOP. Now imagine the things you could do with the toy car. You could drive it around, open its doors, or pretend that it's flying. These actions you can do are like the methods or functions in OOP. I was like, okay, that makes sense. And then when I asked about functional programming, it said, let's say you're making a sandwich. You have the steps to follow to make the sandwich, right? First, you take the two slices of bread, then you put the peanut butter on one side, jelly on the other side. Then you put the two slices together. Each of these steps is like a function in functional programming. In functional programming, we're focused on the steps or functions, and we try to make each step as clear as simple as possible. We don't worry about things like the sandwich ingredients until we actually need to use them in a step. I don't know. I just thought it would be fun to share what what a what a large language model how how much it could simplify some of these concepts because it is hard to follow, even as someone who's been uh, programming for decades. Like the the things that you guys say, the words, the you know the Just all the, you know, technical terms. It's just hard to, it's hard to, you know, keep it all, make it up, make it make sense. It's very abstract, even, even to someone who's in the know. What are your thoughts on, you know, uh, this, this paradigm or like you, I think you were nodding your head a lot when you talked about taking a hybrid approach and what your current job demands are. Um, Anything you want to share insights on the paradigm here we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I don't want to derail it, right? But the the paradigm that I like to think of things now is, is not necessarily object-oriented or functional. It's, it's more of thinking in terms of observations, right? All data is just an observation, whether it's external or internally made of a decision. Uh, and that's really helped me out. And it kind of plays into both, right? You, you kind of do need to define your, um, your objects, uh, but... It lends itself more to the, the functional sense, and you're making decisions based on this data coming in. So, um, but yeah, maybe that's a topic for another time now. I think of that, but yeah, I'd love to, to dive more into what, what do you guys think of those definitions that we heard, right? Chat GTP and
4: elaborate on those. Yeah, it is pretty hard to. To talk about this stuff, it's pretty abstract, you know, if you, if you haven't done it a little bit before. Um, I guess perhaps another attempt at defining it is, you know, functional programming is attempting to map inputs to outputs. So that's how you kind of think of functions. They're, they're things, they're little devices that take an input and produce the same output for the same input, always. And then you express your whole program in a combination of these things. Obviously, there's many other concepts, but that's the core of it, I think. And then, you know, with objects, you're trying to model the world as objects in your program, and the objects have internal state, and they also have certain behaviors. And so that, th- those are the, the fields and methods defined on the object. That's kind of how I think about things. Um, but obviously, you know, there's, there's overlap between the two paradigms and, and all sorts of other things related to it.
1: Yeah, so um, when I hear people talk about Functional programming—they use a lot of words that I don't understand, right? But what you just said makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but yeah, I—I I can't even think of some of the, you know, the offshoots of of what they say and the, but like the side effects, like what you said of what you put in will always be the same coming out, and I love that. So when I do my own little programming paradigm, any type of business logic that I do. I try to model it that way as well, right? Even the time, right? Don't there's no there, there's nothing that can be you know changing inside of there. So you pass in the time as well, right? Any environment variables into that function, anything that you need, right? So it's it's always the same. I think mean, it's a pure function, is what they call it. But I don't know if that's the same as functional or if it's like a part of it, or like what what other parts are there to functional.
4: Yeah, so can I can I take a little detour here? Historical, yeah. historical detour. Yeah, I,
0: lo- I love the history. It Helps me. Stories help us, you know, put things into context. That's how we. That's how humans learn, right? So.
4: Yeah, yeah. So I think this is this kind of uh, highlights why the paradigms are the way they are. So, if you go back to the '30s, um, so a lot of us have heard of Alan Turing, most probably, right? So he invented this concept of the Turing machine, and it's this abstract computer that can do. In principle, anything that any other computer can do. It can compute any computable function uh, or program. So in my mind, the, the Turing machine model is kind of the, it maps onto the imperative slash object oriented world pretty well. You know, you're, you're manipulating a tape and you're reading and writing state and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lesser known person is per, perhaps uh, Alonzo Church. So together they they formed this thing called the uh, Church Turing hypothesis, okay? So Alonzo Church was the inventor of lambda calculus, if you guys have heard of that, which is a mathematical framework for modeling computation. And turns out, you know, through this uh, Church Turing hypothesis, it turns out that the two models are equivalent, so the Turing machine and the lambda calculus They're equivalent, i.e. they can compute the same functions, no more, no less, right? They're equivalent classes. So what does that mean? That means anything you can do on a Turing machine, you can do using uh, Lambda calculus as well and vice versa. The functional programming paradigm is basically an evolution of the Lambda calculus, right? it's it's math oriented. It's very based on functions. By the way, that's where the the keyword Lambda comes in in many uh, programming languages for uh, anonymous functions. So lambda calculus kind of birthed this functional paradigm and then the Turing machine style birthed this you know imperative slash object oriented paradigm. So Interesting. they are equivalent and you know that that's where they come from but because of that and because of the history there's a lot of terms that come you know from from the old school math days like you know currying maybe if you've heard of that you know immutability that all that kind of stuff pure functions all that comes from the uh, you know math background from uh, the lambda calcos, which is pretty interesting. So that that's the historical kind of backdrop for this, and that's where you know a lot of the the terms still linger from from those days. Even though they can seem very esoteric.
0: Yeah, yeah no? uh, some of those terms, pure function means uh, it's co- function is considered idempotent. How do you say that word? Mm-hmm.
4: Item I- uh, yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. Immutability, higher order functions, recursion. Referential transparency. It def. It sounds like you're in like a in a, a high, you know, a, a 400 level math class, basically.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. So I would say deterministic, right? It's the the word right. It's always always going to be the same, no matter what you put in, right? It's kind of the definition there.
4: Yeah. So the the side effect aspect is a is a big part of it. It's it's the idea that when you run a function, all it does is a computation and nothing else happens elsewhere right so the side effect it, side effects are everywhere in object oriented programming like if i call a, a method on an object i don't know if some database will be written to or this you know the global variable somewhere will will mutate or even the object state itself will change so that's that's usually what happens so there's a lot of side effects so you call the function multiple times and different things can happen right If a function is idempotent or referentially transparent or pure or all those other synonyms or kind of synonyms, then that means when you call it, nothing else is happening. All you're doing is you're getting an output that is computed based on that input. It's just a mapping from inputs to outputs every time you get the same exact thing. So that's that's where the purity comes in. And it turns out if you enforce that kind of purity in the actual language, such as Haskell, if you actually enforce it at the compiler level, uh, you can do some really neat tricks. Uh, for example, you can cache or memoize the results of a function, right? So if you know that every, that the function is pure, then if you compute an input once, you don't have to run it again. You don't have to compute it in the future. You can just cache that. ever the value will be the same for the same input, so you don't have to rerun it. You can't do that with, with object-oriented, uh, languages because you can't cache the result of a method because the method could have side effects, right? It could do something important that you can't cache, right? That you're actually sometimes running it for the side effect itself. So that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know, Mike, if you have anything to add here. Yeah, the only
3: thing that I'd love to add is um, as as I was kind of reading the description and, and talk, we're talking about this. You know, I want to mention that that, that there are very few functional languages that truly enforce that right like haskell's one of them almost another one right but essentially there there are quite a few uh programming languages that are a hybrid approach right like elixir scala f sharp and uh so I just wanted to let folks know that that that's out there right you you know you don't have to go really hard to that one side I'd say that's the uh you know the the um uh, There have been as many people doing that, right? Like, I think this hybrid approach is is actually pretty popular, and that's kind of, like, where I land as well.
1: I wish, you know, all languages would allow you to define them, right? Like, yeah, let me do whatever, but I would love to say, like, hey, on this function, it's pure. Don't let anybody, you know, have side effects in it or, uh, you know, like a strict, right, on the the file or whatever. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see that.
3: Purity's um, best, honestly. I mean, when I'm writing code, I, I go for purity as much as possible, and taking side effects and and trying to keep them to one section of the code, right? Kind of like a backplane that everything has to run through.
4: Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So Tom, to your point, um, you know the the enforcement is important, because, you know, because if it's just kind of optional, then the compiler slash runtime can't make certain decisions because there's no guarantees so that's why you don't see languages that like let you say okay this section this is just pure functional this one's not you know you it would be kind of cool to to see that but that's definitely harder to implement from a language design perspective yeah, and, and I, you know and if you don't if you don't do any guarantees then uh it's not very useful the guarantee is kind of where the power comes from
2: yeah
1: even if it was a language like like javascript right it's not compiling if there was just maybe like libraries that could do that for me, right? Like you know, decorate it, say like, yeah, this this is you know, fair function. Don't let anybody touch the file system or you know anything like that inside of this function or anything. Yeah. I don't know.
0: Yep. We got some interesting questions uh, conversation going in the chat. I thought I'd just sprinkle them in here. Um, where you know, so Sir Lancelot, he says, you know. Take a shot every time you hear Haskell. What are your thoughts on the overhead of copying data in functional languages versus just mutating the underlying data in game programming? In game programming, for example, have you seen this? Does that does the question make sense? I can ask yeah, can you get on here to, to okay, yeah. Take take a shot at it.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, there's all these because it's more abstract. Functional programming usually uh, can be less performant, at least on on paper. Because it's doing more for you, and you're not really controlling the metal, so to speak, as much. so there could be more overhead. One of the such one such example is this uh, copying stuff, right? If did is immutable, then when you you know pass a variable to a function, you're copying it rather than using pointers or something like that. in In practice, I think this is not a big concern, especially with you know modern hardware, modern, language development techniques, etc. It used to be. It seems to be it seems to be right now not much of an issue anymore. You know, these are kind of constant time overheads that you pay for and they will be optimized for you in some way so you don't have to worry about it. You know, Haskell does a lot of that, for example, you know, the, the compiler is is very mature at this point and will make sure to do whatever magic it needs in the in the background to be performant. But the user can still enjoy those you know uh, guarantees, et etc. Uh, there's you know lazy evaluation uh, uh, other stuff like that with Haskell that makes it a little bit harder as well to reason about the performance. That's part of the drawback as well. Uh, but in general, it's more abstract, so it's kind of harder to see what what's actually happening at the machine level uh, and and therefore you can incur more you know performance costs. but I don't think they're an issue anymore. It seems to be a, a solved problem at this point. I don't know if others agree.
0: Feel free to chime in, but yeah. Follow up question from Lance is: Can we talk about what side effects are? What What does that mean when you say side effects of a function? We we talked on that with the uh, object oriented, and what does that mean? I
3: can Let's take this one if that's okay with everybody. Yeah. yeah. So so side effects and Tom touched on this too, right? Side effects are something that um, essentially take you away from purity on a function, right? So. Uh, a random number is a side effect, right? It's going to be different every time you run it. The time, right, would be different every time uh, you run it. Hitting a date, you know, connecting to a database and either reading or writing data, right? These are things that could be different the next time you run the function one time to another. So uh, with pure functions, not having a side effect means not doing anything that could change, right? That that output as, um,
0: as you mentioned, as folks mentioned. Okay. With the same input, and also from the from the chat room, uh, just to wrap it up, we've got uh, from Nicole. You know, just a question. It sounds like functional programming is for more specific use cases. If yeah, like if you need to use a database, will it work? Like, if you need to do I/O to a database, will functional work? I guess even I'm confused. Like, what is the use cases? when I should use functional versus not? I'm I think I'm most comfortable in the OOP world because I just think in terms of objects and and that just makes sense in my brain, but there's probably been times when I've written functional stuff and not even knowing it because I'm using like a hybrid language, right? So what are the use cases?
4: Yeah, so I mean, think about writing to a database. That's not good for functional programming. That's a side effect. That's intentionally, you want to change the world in a permanent way, right? In a semi-permanent way, you're changing a record. So that's not very amenable to a functional style on the other hand think of like some pure computation Mm. like a math function like computing the interest payment on a loan that has specific inputs and your output is always the same given the same inputs you don't have to change a database somewhere you don't have to uh, talk to the user io wise you don't have to get a random number and nothing it's a pure computation so that would be great for a you know a functional paradigm but in general You know, if you kind of want to think about real-world applications, perhaps the best one is a compiler. So functional languages are very good for writing compilers themselves. Why? Because you can think of a compilation as just a pure function that takes source code and outputs some other source code or, you know, binary code, whatever the output is. And it's deterministic and there's no side effects, right? For the same input, hopefully you're getting the same output every single time. And you can so you can model the entire compiler as a function that can be broken down into subfunctions, obviously, and that that is something that can write you know end to end in a functional programming language, and it would feel completely natural uh, with, with no headaches.
0: Question for both of you: When you guys are working with your development teams, um, are you, when you're scoping out work? Are you at that level where it's like this should be? A, this you know we're gonna this should be written in an OOP style. This should be written functional. Are you having those conversations in your in your sprints or whatever methodology you're do, using to actually get code into production? Are you guys talking about what paradigm th- this this functionality should be written in?
4: Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Go ahead. I'll I'll share after you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely
3: conversations around this. Uh, we're not doing any games programming or anything though. I would say that, uh, you know, I, I'm interested now to, to look at uh, game programming with functional, you know, just to, just to kind of get an idea of where, they, where we're at in the modern age. But as far as, like, functional programming for, um, you know, doing just things without side effects, I would say, yeah, yes, you're right. At, at the core of it, pure functional programming is best for that, for, for just, you know, pure functions in and out. But the fact of the matter is, like Haskell and, you know, Elm and other pure functional languages, allow you to to do side effects you're just doing it in a very specific way where it's contained right so I want folks to understand that you could still use Haskell to connect to a database or generate a d- random number and whatnot these things absolutely work and we have a line of business application where the entire uh, front end is written in now and we have hundreds of thousands of lines of code on that it's a pretty big application and that is doing a whole bunch of back-end API calls and whatnot right so um, so it's, but, but as far as, you know, deciding what we're going to use, uh, for a specific case, I would say most of our applications nowadays are sort of written in an object oriented, uh, style sort of, um, I forget what it, exactly what the saying is, right? But it's like the functional core and then the object oriented where you're utilizing the functions. We're trying to write as many pure functions as possible. Everybody on the team, including like our contractors understand that a pure function where there's an in and an out, right? And we're we're essentially, you know, it makes it easier to test. It makes it easier to debug. It makes it easier to observe. So I think that we we kind of write in a hybrid style now with, with homework every application. And I think that it's more of an overarching like nomenclature and sort of, I, I want to say like convention style or like our standards where, you know, when we're doing code reviews, we're looking at it, right? We're looking at where side effects are, like even stuff like logging and whatnot, right? Those are also side effects, right? You're writing out to to uh, external service and whatnot, and we're trying to contain those to specific points in the code where it's only going to happen here as kind of a backplane to the rest of the application.
0: Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, Shafiq, anything to add? Uh, how your team, you team kind of dissects that that paradigm?
4: Yeah, so I mean, just to respond to some of the, the, the chat comments, um, so you, obviously, like we said at the beginning, you can do everything with either paradigm, right? So it's not a matter of can you do it, but it's a matter of like, does it feel comfortable and natural? So uh, yes, you can do side effects in in Haskell, and that's uh, using monads. It's kind of really genius ways of uh, doing that in a contained way. But does it feel natural? You know, I would say not really. Certain things, like even just adding a console log style thing to your function. Can't really do that in haskell that's something an intuition you would have very strongly if you're an object oriented programmer you simply can't do it in haskell so it's kind of weird and and clunky feeling when you want to do side effects um so, but i'll tell you what you know my team does and this is how we've kind of transformed all this kind of stuff into a practical process on on the team so open doc is a doc scheduling uh you know so- software SaaS software so we we split the application into a core library, much like what Mike was alluding to. It's a core library written in TypeScript that it, it's enforced using code review and other techniques. Uh, it has to be functional style, and, and it contains all the business logic. So, for example, anything that uh, looks for availability given a certain schedule and certain appointments, compute the availability of, of appointments between, you know, a certain time range, let's say. That's something i Uh, our application has to do all the time that's a core function in the core library that's written in a pure functional style so any business logic like that including stuff by the way like uh, user permissions can certain user with this role access XYZ resource that's a function that returns a boolean right given the user and this resource and perhaps the current time or some other input can they access that resource yes or no that's a pure function so we have all these you know we have have hundreds or thousands of these pure functions inside the core library and there what's nice about that is that you can write unit tests because one of the huge advantages of the referential transparency or the purity is that you can write a unit test very easily you can just inject inputs into this function and check that their outputs are correct done so we have this massive you know unit test suite that tests the core library And then for things that are input output, that's where we use OOP. So that's OOP is very good for input output. So, you know, we have controllers that manage API calls, you know, inputs from parameters, uh, JSON, you know, uh, marshalling and unmarshalling and all that stuff. That's not easy to do with functional programming. So we use this kind of standard natural object oriented programming there and it works very well. So the OOP code interacts with the world, input output, databases, et cetera, networks. And then it calls these pure functions from the core library and done. It's been a very successful and that's something, you know, that's, that's the, that's what I mean by hybrid. That's something I think I'll I'll keep doing, you know, until uh, there's something better that comes up, but this has worked very well. And it's kept the core logic very well tested and, and solid. And so we never have like business logic bugs. Right. Uh, And then also it it keeps, you know, programmers happy because they're not shackled by the, uh, unnecessary constraints of functional programming when it comes to things like input output.
0: Just out of curiosity, are you using TypeScript for the not
4: for the non-functional? Yeah we're, using, or, yeah, we're using TypeScript for both. So okay. TypeScript is, is a pretty uh, awesome language and uh, it's, it's got its problems, but you can do functional style very easily with it. And also, obviously, you can do objects. And so uh, that's where it's a little bit hard. You can't tell TypeScript that this function has to be pure there's no such concept but we enforce it at the code review level and at the automated unit test level and it works pretty well you know 99 of the time no issues every now and then something sneaks in and we'll have to kind of fix it where there's some side effect usually it's some function we don't want that so we'll have to fix it so it's not like haskell where it's 100 percent guaranteed but it's uh, it's close uh, we're getting there thanks
1: i wonder if there's oh uh, yeah uh, we're getting right like, now that i'm saying it like there's got to be some or if you use Visual yeah. Studio Code or whatever, like VS Code, some extension that you can say, "Hey, tell me if it's you know, pure function or not." Right? It dives through and checks all the calls inside of it. I don't know. It'd be nice. Yeah,
4: yeah it's hard. It's hard to detect side effects. was if you think about it, like you'll have to do a full trace of all the functions and make sure that you know the function that you're calling, you have to make sure it doesn't have side effects either, etc. Yeah. So if it's not baked into your language design, it's really hard to do that. But yeah, maybe. Yeah. So uh, we're getting close to
0: time, but I'm going to invite um, Lance up on the stage here. He wanted to uh, talk about the the quote from Alan Kay, um, and he thinks there might be some—that um, OOP is misunderstood. So Lance is a frequent host of the show, friend of the show, Lancelot Carlson, co-founder of HealPay. Welcome to the show. Talk to us about this quote from Alan Kay.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, mental exercise. Uh, he, I think of it as he was thinking about OOP as this message passing thing. Um, you know, I everyone compares the analogy of, like, the uh, uh, chaos theory idea where you create little objects. And then they sort of, like, you know, from these little objects, you can then create a system because, you know, they're all interacting with each other. Um, It's an interesting idea, but I I think that the, maybe the low, so the local retention is interesting. Um, You know, I think at OOP, everyone emphasizes like this encapsulation of state mutation inside of the class. And I think that the way that languages implemented his ideas kind of went off the rails, like C++, like everything is class oriented instead of object oriented. And so... And and his his emphasis was more on message passing. What what are you defining as far as like defining the the and when when we say message passing, it's like the the public interface for which you are speaking to other objects. And that was really more of the emphasis rather than this sort of class based hierarchy, inheritance, that kind of stuff. Like we, I think OOP got a bad rap. I feel like when
1: that you know, happens to to any any term right yep. in, the, in technology. You know, turns into something else that was completely the opposite, like DevOps, right? It's now I means completely the opposite of what it used to be it when it started off. Oh. So, yeah.
4: But, you know, even with message passing, so yeah, it's, that, that is a nice way to think about it. So, when you call a method on an object, you can think about it as you're passing that object a method uh, or, sorry, message, right? Mm-hmm. So, you're saying, hey, do something or, or, hey, something happened, whatever it is, it's some message that you're passing to the object. However, I think there's still the concept that the object maintains its internal state and it does something with that message. It might store it, it might update some other parameters. It might reach out to another object and do further things which have further side effects. So I I think that's still in there and that's still implicit in the message passing paradigm. So you're not, you're not going to escape this, uh, side effects business, right? um no matter what you do like it's it's baked into object oriented pretty strongly because each object has some internal state and gets manipulated over time the the reason why that's appealing is because a lot of the real world behaves like this right like uh, bacteria and you know cups and humans and uh, cars and all that you, you can pretty easily at least on the surface you can map your problem onto object oriented programming pretty quickly that's why it's appealing i think it's very intuitive in that sense but the you know, the drawbacks are, it becomes hard to reason about when you have this chaos of tons of objects interacting with each other, holding their own state. When you come back uh, an hour later, all the objects would have different states, and now you have to reason about them differently. You can't use the same reasoning, right? Uh, you, can't, you can't guarantee certain things, and so it's harder to, to reason about and perhaps harder to find bugs, et cetera.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I've looked at the um, Elixir and Erlang community quite a bit, where they do a lot of this message passing stuff. And you still run into this issue of, okay, I've changed one side of it, of the message passing, and then the other side, you know, it gets corrupted because of, you know, all of that. So there's there's problems on the functional side as well, uh, where when you're mutating, you're you're mutating the messages back and forth. And so you have to handle that somehow, versioning that goes along with it. i i just think that yes they're i i think that people have been using oop improperly where they've you know they they've stuck too much mutation in their classes and they haven't done enough to like make them small and right and them single responsibility and you know that's where we run into a lot of issues where it's like if if oxygen the 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 fundamental you know ad, um molecule was more complicated than it was, I mean, it probably still wreaks havoc on certain things, right? I mean, it oxidizes things, but like, if it wasn't as simple as it was, like, it wouldn't be useful to to talk into other things. So,
3: yeah. I'll make a quick note about that because I'm I'm glad you brought Elixir and Erlang up. So the, the back end of that same line of business system that I was talking about, and we have a few back ends written in Elixir. And... I I like the balance that elixir strikes with, with the message passing. It's using recursion behind the scenes. Right. But it feels very object oriented. And I just want to echo that you still run into a lot of the same types of problems. Right. Because state is changing. Right. State is is hard. State changing
0: is is what's difficult. Right. Overall. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We probably go all afternoon on this, but um, any last questions, Thoughts or comments, questions that you guys want to bring up before I wrap this up?
2: Well, strongly typed versus not. So the next debate, not next week. week. Yeah, we <laughs> should we should have
4: that sometime. That, that's a, another fun one.
0: <laughs> All right, guys, I want to thank uh, Shafiq and Mike for for joining us today. Um, really interesting conversation. I hope the uh, listeners find it uh, conversation informative and valuable. We'd love to have you join us again next week where we'll be talking about our continuing our serverless series, uh, focusing on security in uh, in serverless functions. Um, cool. As always, we're going to have expert guests in an interactive audience and uh, great audience today. Thanks for all the questions. Great to see so much activity in the chat and uh, hope to see you next week. So tune Thank in. Thank you. Thank you.